So our very simple question, and if you, I, I don't know how much you care about a sermon title. I don't even know if you know that we put sermon titles in the bulletin. Um, I'm not a big title guy either in terms of what they mean to me, and I'm certainly not good at coming up with them, but this one might at least kind of be provocative for you. I'm going to argue that in 1 Corinthians 14, I think, at least in our cultural context today, the most disobeyed commandment in the New Testament is in our chapter. Maybe you saw what it was. Maybe you had a guess. Maybe you're just reading it now. Um, but here's the real kind of theme. It's a question. Why do we do this every Sunday? Why do, you, why do you get on the subway? Why do you get up early and get dressed? Why do you come in person rather than just do it over Zoom? Why do you do this? And there's a lot of things that maybe are attractive about coming to church for you. Maybe you grew up going to church. Maybe now it's significant to you, but it wasn't earlier on. But at some point in your life, and it might even be right now, you wake up in the morning on Sunday and you're like, do I really need to do this? Do I really need to go to church today? And it might be, and I'm going to end with this in a little while, probably kind of two extremes that that may this hard. One is burnt out, being burnt out. You might just be exhausted from giving yourself to the body of Christ for a long period of time. And you get to the point where you just feel like you're running on fumes. On the other extreme, there's boredom. It just feels like this is, I know I'm supposed to do this, but this feels completely irrelevant to my life. I go and I get nothing, or I just, I don't even understand why I'm supposed to do this. I just do it out of a rote sense of duty. And my main goal this morning is that we would have a sense of why we do this. Why you don't just kind of go to a Starbucks on Sunday morning. And if you're at Starbucks right now on Zoom, next week I expect to see you here. Um, But why you don't just go to Starbucks, pull out your Bible, pray, and then go, okay, I experienced God today. Why do we actually bother to gather together? Being in COVID for the last two years has raised this in a new way for us. We still have a Zoom call on Sunday mornings. We probably will for a while. How long that lasts, I don't know. There was a a New York Times article a month or two ago by Tish Harrison Warren, who's a great theologian who teaches at, uh, well, she's in the Anglican Church. I don't know if she teaches at Whedon, but she's a great writer, regularly writes for the New York Times editorial post as a Christian. And she basically argued that at some point in the near future, if COVID is coming to an end, if the pandemic, if the worst is behind us, at some point, she said, churches need to turn off their Zoom options. And it led to a ton of controversy. She got so much nasty feedback from people all over the spectrum. And part of it might have been that that was too soon or that there's an in-between option. Maybe, Maybe she wasn't completely right in that. I don't know. But some of it was certainly reflecting that we don't understand all the time why it even matters that we gather together in person. Why can't I just dial in on Zoom? Why can't I just listen to a sermon on a podcast during the week? Why can't I just read the Bible on my own and pray on my own? Why do we need to gather together? If you're in 1 Corinthians, I want you to back up to chapter 11 real quick. All of chapters 11 through 14 are kind of a sustained discussion. You might even read it because we'll come back to 1 Corinthians 12 next week. You might read these chapters on your own, But I want you to notice that there is a a word, in Greek it's just one word, in in English it sounds like a phrase, that runs through these four chapters like a golden thread and holds them together. The first time you see it is in chapter 11, starting in verse 17. Paul says about what we're going to do next, the Lord's table. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, that whole phrase is one word. It's actually a a word that's connected to where we get synagogue from. A synagogue is just a gathering place um, in the Jewish faith, in the early Christian faith. We saw that in Exodus. Moses assembles the people in one place. He doesn't send letters to everybody in all the different places that they're living. When you come together, Paul says in verse 17, it is not for the better, but for the worst. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. 
For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Then he says it again in verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you're actually eating because the poor are being oppressed and ignored in the way it's happening. When you come together. Jump down to verse 33. So then, brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, eat before you come to church at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give instructions when I come. Those are just a couple of examples. This phrase, when you come together, just continues to appear throughout these chapters. It appeared twice in the chapter I just read out loud in chapter 14. Come back to chapter 14 with me. So at the very least, we can say this. What does it mean to be a church or to be a part of a church? In the Reformation, that was a big question. Like, what are the marks of the church? And usually you get really important answers like, well, the preaching of the word, having church discipline, having the sacraments, the Lord's table. But you have to back up even before that. A church is constituted by a people gathering together in a physical location, which is one of the reasons, this is not the main topic this morning, but one of the reasons, and I know Kirk believes this very deeply as well, that multi-site churches are making a mistake. That what's actually going on is there's multiple churches there for one church to have multiple locations or probably a, a, with a little more um, kind of understanding, but still would love to resist it. If we were a size of a church where we had, say, a 930 service and an 11 o'clock service, would that be one church or two churches? Our mindset today is that's one church, but I think you can make a good argument that that's two churches, that actually being together in one place at the same time, is constitutive of what the word church means. Church is not just we all dot our I's and cross our T's ideologically the same way. It's not we all care about the same things in the world. It's not that we all send emails and we can see each other on Zoom screens throughout the week. It means that we regularly all get together in one place at the same time. And that's in part what constitutes us as a church. Why do we do that? And if you've ever read or you just heard me read out loud, 1 Corinthians 14, probably what stood out to you is what the heck is speaking in tongues and prophecy? That, that was like in the Old Testament and that doesn't happen anymore. Or depending on your background, you might be like, finally, we're talking about speaking in tongues and prophecy. Wherever you are, let me say this. These things are the presenting issue, but they're not what 1 Corinthians 14 is actually about. We'll come back to them someday if you want to talk about them, but I, I just don't think they're actually what Paul is talking about. They're the presenting issue. There's a twofold structure in the chapter. I stopped at verse 26. Up to verse 26, the big idea is that whatever happens when we gather together, Paul values it being intelligible to everybody that's there. Speaking in tongues, at the very least, whether it's an actual human language or an angelic language or just babbling, whatever it is, it is at the very least clear other people do not understand what you are saying. I think in the chapter and throughout the New Testament, it's clear, you don't even understand what you're saying. It bypasses your mind, but it is an edifying experience in worship before God, whether that still happens today or not, another question. But what it does not do is help anybody else around you understand anything, or experience anything. In fact, it tends to be distracting, and it tends to, at least in Corinth, lead the people kind of showing off or at least prioritizing their own spiritual experience to the detriment or at least to the ignoring of their neighbors, whereas prophecy is something where whatever it is, it means that you're speaking words that you and the other people understand. And unlike tongues where you're speaking into God, prophecy, you're speaking it to another person 
on behalf of God for their upbuilding. And so in the first part of the chapter, Paul prioritizes intelligibility that people need to understand what's going on. This is one of the reasons the Protestant reformers were so insistent that the mass in the Middle Ages being in Latin was a profound spiritual mistake. That if people cannot understand what is going on, the spirit will not be at work the way that the spirit should be at work. That was changed during Vatican II, right after World War II. There are still some Catholic churches to do it, but praise God, Catholic churches are generally in the vernacular of the people today. But for many centuries, it wasn't the case. In the second part of the chapter, which we're not looking at today, Paul prioritizes order, making sure that it's not kind of a free-for-all in chaos, that one person does this, and then everybody kind of responds to it or experiences it. Then the next person goes and making sure that there's order. Because if it's chaos, it's generally not helpful to a lot of people. People are overwhelmed by that. They don't understand what's going on. But even that intelligibility order, even that is not really what Paul is concerned about. It's, it's the surface um, kind of diagnosis of what he's really about. And so three answers that I just want us to work through in the next couple of minutes of why we gather together in person, in the same place, at the same time each week. For what it's worth, what Paul describes here, I think, isn't limited to just what we're doing right now on Sunday mornings. If you get together for a prayer group in person, if you get together for a small group Bible study in person, I think that this still holds. Whenever corporately Christians get together in order to experience God, to hear from God, to encourage each other, what Paul is talking about here should be relevant to us. So the first thing is this, we heard it in all three passages, we gather together in order to be built up, in order to be edified. And, and let me put that in two different ways. We corporately gather together in order to be built up corporately. So here's one way to think about that. I hope that when you come here, I hope it's enjoyable. I hope it's life-giving. I hope that you feel like you experience God. But here's a way not to think about spiritual experience, that it's just kind of this intrinsic, autonomous, compartmentalized reality, and you just go home, and then kind of like if you drink a couple of beers on Friday night, there's a buzz you feel for a little while, but 36 hours later, it's just gone, and it doesn't even matter that it happened. The experience we have on Sunday mornings is meant to change us. We ought to leave on a regular basis a little different than the way we came in. We are to be built up. If you have a different translation, you might have a word like to be edified. Both of those are metaphors that literally are taken from constructing a building. If you ever thought, we don't really use this word too much today anymore. I want to edify somebody else. It comes from the word edifice, right? You need an edifice to put up a building. These are metaphors taken from when this building was built, whenever it was built, a lot of stuff had to go into it. And there's something analogous to that to what the body of Christ is like. One of the great metaphors in the New Testament. So we are a spiritual house. We are a temple that God's spirit dwells in. We are a spiritual building that God desires to build up, to be built up, to be something that we're not yet. On the other hand, here's the second part of it. Every single one of you is here, if you understand why you're here, in order to build up other people around you. So here's the first thing I want you to hear that might be a different category for thinking about worship than maybe we usually think about it, or at least often do. Worship certainly includes a vertical dimension of being focused on God, hearing from God, responding to God, but worship in the New Testament is also horizontal. It is also something in which you explicitly have your neighbor in your purview, which is why you can't do it on your own. 
in private or sitting at Starbucks or looking at a computer, at least not to the same degree. When we come together, we come together not just to give thanks to God. You can speak in a tongue and do that, but also to instruct, to encourage, to build one another up. And you cannot do that on your own. One of the things that's so interesting, and you probably heard some of it, just look at the beginning of the chapter. Throughout the, the chapter, and in chapter 12, which we'll look at next week, is about spiritual gifts in general. We're going to talk about spiritual gifts in general next week. Chapter 14 is about tongues and prophecy and building each other up versus just doing something for your own sake. And in the middle, 1 Corinthians 13, one of the most famous chapters in the entire Bible, all about love. It is not a digression. It is not random. Paul is saying what needs to direct, what needs to orient all of our desire for spiritual experience, all of the use of our service and gifts is love. At the beginning, if you want to turn there real quick, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. This connects the dots from chapter 13 in 1 Corinthians to chapter 14 with building up. Paul says at the beginning of chapter 8, verse 1, now concerning food that has been offered to idols. We know that all of us possess knowledge. That is, we know these idols don't exist and there's only one true God. But that kind of knowledge only puffs up, but love builds up. Chapter 13, love. Chapter 14, builds up. When Paul uses the phrase build up or edify in chapter 14, what you need to hear in your mind, if you understand it rightly, is love. That's what love looks like in action. Love does not seek its own. Love is not primarily focused on its own experience. Love is focused on building up others around us. And that is something you cannot do on your own. That is something you can't do in private. You could potentially have a more intense or depending on your personality type, a more satisfying experience on your own. You could be hiking in the Hudson River Valley right now and looking at creation and be like, I got so much more out of this than I do at church. And that would still miss the point. Because church is not just uh, a, a kind of incubator for your own private spiritual experience. It is so that we can be built up, which requires other people building you up, and so that you, I, can build one another up along the way. We get together in order to be built up and to build one another up. Again, in that Exodus um, story that we just read, every single person brings something that is required for for the building to go up and to be what it's supposed to be. And that is behind these images in the New Testament. John Calvin, this is not one of his uh, famous quotes, but I think it is so insightful, is talking about um, kind of the flexibility and the freedom that different churches and different cultures and different times have to kind of order their worship services differently, which is maybe not what you think of sometimes with Reformed theology. There's a lot of freedom and a lot of flexibility. But Calvin says in this quote, different cultures, different moments of history are free to order worship services differently. But I want you to notice the two criteria he gives that should guide it. He says this, the Lord has in his sacred oracles, that is the scriptures, faithfully embraced and clearly expressed both the whole sum of true righteousness and all aspects of the worship we owe his majesty and whatever was necessary for our salvation. Therefore, in these things, the master alone is to be heard. But because he did not will in outward discipline, and ceremonies to prescribe in detail what we ought to do when we gather together because he foresaw that the answer to this depends upon the state of the times and he did not deem one form suitable for all ages. And that an incredible insight 
500 years ago. Here, we must take refuge in those general rules or principles which he has given that whatever the necessity of each church will require for order and decorum in its worship should be tested by these, against these. Lastly, because he has taught nothing specifically and because these things are not necessary to salvation. You play a guitar, do you do piano, do you have a confession of sin, do you just have songs and sermons? There's better answers and worse answers to that, but nobody's salvation is hanging on which kind of church you go to with respect to that. He says, because he has taught nothing specifically and because these things are not necessary to salvation, Calvin ends by saying, here's two principles. First, for the upbuilding of the church. You hear that phrase? For the upbuilding of the church, one, it ought to be variously accommodated to the cultural customs of each nation and age. Why? Because if you speak against or apart from the culture, people will not understand what is happening. You cannot bring an outside culture or try to be all cultural. It needs to be according to, Calvin says, the customs of each nation and age. And then it will be fitting, as the advantage of the church will require, to change or abrogate traditional practices. Your great-grandparents did it this way or this culture that brought the gospel to this new country did it that way you don't have to hold on to it forever and to establish new ones. And then here's the second thing. Indeed, I admit we ought not to charge into innovation rashly suddenly for inefficient cause. And then he ends with this, and it's such a great line, but love will best judge what may hurt or edify. And if we let love be our guide, all will be safe. If we let love be our guide, all will be safe. Intelligibility and is it an expression of love that people can actually experience and be built up? Calvin says, that's what should dictate what happens when Christians get together and gather together. Now, if you go back, chapter 13, it's not any old love. It's the love that Paul mentions in chapter 13. Love that's patient, that's kind, that doesn't seek its own, that cares about truth, that forsakes unrighteousness, all of that. One last thing on this point, edification. It's interesting that in verses 13 through 19, in chapter 14, Paul has his eyes on believers, whether believers understand what's happening and whether it encourages them and builds them up. But then starting in verse 20 down to 25, he has his eyes on unbelievers who might walk into the service and he expects that it will also be intelligible to them, that it will also make sense to them. So here's a real quick distinction that I think is rooted here, but rooted in all of scripture. On the one hand, worship services are for Christians. We gather together for the body of Christ to be built up. They are not to be primarily designed to be attractive to non-Christians. On the other hand, they are also open to non-Christians. And what we do needs to have an eye on, will there be cultural stumbling blocks? Not theological stumbling blocks like we watered on the gospel, but will somebody walk in and be like, what are you guys doing? This is like an insane asylum in here. Like the picture he paints of speaking in tongues where it makes sense if you understand what Christianity is and you've been a part of the church, that's there. But somebody walks in and they're like, they not only need to become a Christian, they need to also switch their culture in order to be here. But that shouldn't be the case if at all possible. So we gather together and the point of all spiritual gifts, spiritual experience, all of God's grace that he pours out on us is so that corporately, we could be built up. And so individually, we could participate in building each other up. So here's the second one. And I just said it. Why do we gather together? And here is my answer to the most disobeyed commandment in the New Testament. And just so you know, it's not sex. It's not money. 
There's plenty of Christians that disobey and obey those ones. But I think it's this one. Look at verse 26. The conclusion to this whole section is what then, brothers and sisters, when you come together, here's what should happen. Every single one of you, each one, not just leaders, not just a faithful remnant, not just 30% of you, every single one of you has or brings a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. Almost every commentator agrees that is not an exhaustive list. It's ad hoc. There are lots of other gifts that God gives, lots of other ways you can serve, but everybody shows up to participate and shows up to participate, not to show off, not to live into your own self-actualization and self-expression, not in order to have a roller coaster ride, amusement park experience of God, but in order to build up the others around you. When Christians gather together, everybody participates for the common good. I have been a part of many, not just churches, but Christian community experiences where there is no way with a straight face you can say that that's happening or that that's even a goal of what is happening. I have been, and I think that this is pretty typical of at least Western Christianity today, I have been part of communities where the norm, and you've all probably heard this before, is kind of the 80-20 dynamic, that 20% of the people are doing 80% of the work, and 80% of the people are kind of a passive audience. And just in case that sounds like, oh man, it's a lot of conviction today, that's mostly probably our fault as leaders. Um, even if you want to show up and do this, there's often not space to do it. There's often not like, what would I do? I mean, I can put my chair up after the service, but Paul's talking about a lot more than putting your chair up or setting up the sound and tech stuff beforehand. He's talking about using spiritual gifts that contribute to building other people up in their faith. So here's the way I've come to think about it. When we gather together, if it is a spectator sport experience, and again, I'm not just talking about this hour and a half of this service, the post-fellowship time, the prayer groups, the Wednesday night Bible study, whenever people to get together socially as Christians, if it's something like, let's be honest, kind of a mini TED talk happening right now, you could just watch this on YouTube later, like, why do you need to be here to see me do this? And then you kind of watch Chris and sometimes Eric and Adam and Joanna in the future kind of lead us in worship. And maybe you're just like staring at it being like, oh, that's a pretty song. Or you're kind of like mumbling under your breath, but you're not really participating. Why, why are we even here to do this? In all of these things, participation ought to characterize what we do when we get together. That doesn't mean that there's not a sermon. It doesn't mean that there aren't leaders who lead us in music, but it does mean that all of that is to set up the rest of the congregation to get to respond, to get to participate, to get to use their spiritual gifts. And I don't have all the answers of what does this look like in modern Western culture with our busy schedules, but at the very least, participation needs to be one of the things, to put it this way, when you come to church every week, one of your questions should be, what can I bring that will actually build up other people in their faith? What can I say? What can I do? What do I need to be around? What do I need to invest in in order that not just I get something out of this, but so that other people are experiencing the grace of God through me and being built up in their faith? Because the body of Christ, we're not a bunch of consumers, we're a family. And one thing that I think connects all families across all cultures and all times is families are participatory realities. In a family, depending on who you are and what role you are, everybody's got different roles, but everybody participates in a family. We're not an audience. We're a team that's all playing the same game. We're not a corpse. We're a body that's alive. And because of that, all the different parts play their role. So I don't usually do this in a sermon, and I probably usually will in the future, but here's a quick participatory quiz. 
A lot of you know we have six core values in this church. Sometime in the last, I think, eight or nine months, Kirk and I spent 12 weeks tag teaming through our six core values. We spent two weeks on each value. What are our core values? Anybody throw one out. What are our six core values? And no looking at the website. And by the way, as you think about it, I, I went on the website this week and every once in a while I'm thinking about it, I went to NCGV rather than NCGV NYC. If you go to just N NCGV, you get North Car Carolinians against gun violence, which is also a great thing. But just so you know, that's not us. That's not us. We're NCGV NYC. What are our core values? Throw out any of them. It doesn't have to be in the right order. Authenticity. Good. Mutual support. Good. Evangelism, is that you said? Bearing witness. Very good, Sam. Bearing witness. Okay, we got three out of the six. Intimacy with God. Good, Josh. Four of the six. Truth and life. Kind of gospel and the authority of scripture. And then we saw it, our last one in Ephesians 4, to build up the body of Christ, actually be in harmony with each other. What do we call that? When Christians are in harmony with each other and not divided against each other? Unity. Unity. Of all of these core values, many of them connected us, but this in First Corinthians 14, this is our sixth and final core value, mutual support. The relationship between Christians is not defunct, it's not non-existent, it's also not a one-way street where I give and other people receive, or I receive and other people give to me. It's something where everybody shows up both to give and to receive. By the way, because of the selfishness in Corinth, this is not as primary on Paul's agenda, but for some of you, I would also say this, it might be that you show up and you love to serve, and this is where burnt out can come in, um, and you love to use your gifts, or you just feel a great passion to serve the body of Christ, but you're not as good at opening yourself up to receive from other people what you need. Both directions need to happen. Everybody gives, everybody receives, everybody is built up and building up the rest of the body of Christ. This is in part why we are a congregationalist church, which means that we believe that the ultimate authority that Jesus invests in the church, the ultimate way that Jesus is present with the church, it's not that he mediates some grace through me as a pastor that you can't get from anybody else. It's not that the elders go aside and they make a vote or they make a decision and they come. It's that all of us together as the body of Christ are invested with Jesus's authority. Jonathan Lehman in this great book, it's not very long, it's less than 200 pages long, Don't Fire Your Church Members, this is a great title, The Case for Congregationalism, highly encourage you to pick up a copy of this. At some point, I think we'll read it and discuss it as a church, says this. He says, in a congregationalist conception, again, if you haven't heard that word before, that's what we are as a church, to become a member of a church is to be installed into an office. The question every Christian should therefore be interested in is this. What are the tasks, the responsibilities, the authority that comes with being a church member? If Jesus calls every Christian to be part of the church, then those congregational responsibilities belong to basic Christian discipleship. They're not an add-on. They're not an extra. Polity, which is where we get politics from, that is just how do we function as a, ch a church society, rightly practiced, guards the gospel, matures the Christian disciple, strengthens the whole church, 
fortifies its holy integrity and witness before the watching world and equips the congregation to better love their members, their neighbors in word and in deed. That is the expectation is that, and, and let me end with this one on this second point. Here's a little pet peeve of mine. And if you do it in the future, I'm not going to rebuke you. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to be legalistic about this, but I would encourage you not to call me a minister. And I would encourage you not to describe my job as ministry, not because it isn't and not because I'm not, but because you are too, and you're in it too. Ministry is a word that is never used of leaders in the New Testament. It is used of the entire body of Christ. Ephesians 4 says God has given these people, apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and shepherds, to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. If you show up thinking, we pay this guy a salary so he can do this full time so that we can watch him do ministry and receive the benefits from that, you do not understand how the body of Christ works. I'm not here. And so here's three ways you might think about a pastor, all of which I want to convince you are not the right way, or just church leaders in general. The first way you might think about a pastor is that a pastor is in an ontologically, metaphysically different category than other Christians, that he's above or apart from the body of Christ. And so for instance, if you get sick and you're in the hospital someday, I would love to come visit you and pray for you. But if Andy is closer and he comes and visits you and prays for you, you don't have to be like, man, Nick's prayers would have been more effective. Fortunately, we got the non-pastor prayer here. Right? Like that's, that's not a category. I have no um, kind of ownership of a locus of God's grace that can come to you that all of you do not have access to yourself and for each other. And so one way is the thing about the pastor is this one-way street who kind of gives something that's unique that nobody else can give and you just receive. That's not really the way it is. Another way to think about it is the pastor is the whole body. That is the pastor just does the ministry and we show up and we kind of experience that. That's a mistake. And a third one and very easy, even if we deny it in a church for this to happen, is to think that the pastor is the head of the body. But the pastor is not the head of the body. Jesus is the head of the body. You're not the head. I'm not the head. We collectively are not the head. Jesus is the head of the body, which means this. A pastor is just one other body part in the body. That's all he is. Now, he does have a unique role to play but every single body part has a unique role to play. So here's the way I would encourage you to think about it. Probably like some of you, I have been dialed in the March Madness the last couple of days. It is my favorite time of the year in sporting events. The main difference, I think, between a pastor and somebody who's not a pastor is the difference between a player and a coach. Everybody else is there to play one or two specific positions really well. A pastor is there primarily to help everybody else know what their position is and to play it well. You know what a really bad coach is always characterized by, especially if he used to play sports, is he can't ever let somebody else make a mistake. He can't ever let somebody else do it, is he always jumps in and he tries to do it for people. That's always the mark of a bad coach. A good coach stands back and actually values the gifts that other people have that he or she doesn't, actually values building up other people to be and to do what they're supposed to do. So ministers, sorry, I just did it. I'm not a minister, or at least you guys are too. A pastor. A pastor is here to just be one more part of the body, but specifically to equip the rest of the saints to do the work of ministry, which Paul defines as building up the rest of the body. That's everybody's job description in a church. That's why we gather together for, to participate in what God is doing in the construction of this building. Third and final point, why do we gather together? And I want you to look at another summary verse as we end in this chapter. Verse 12. So, therefore, inference. 
chapter 14, verse 12. With yourselves, Corinthians, since you are so eager, literally zealous for manifestations when the spirit shows up, experiences of the spirit. And Paul is describing what is true. If you've ever read first Corinthians, these guys were addicts for Holy Spirit experience. And on the one hand, I want you to notice Paul doesn't squelch that. He doesn't criticize that. He doesn't say, turn it down a little guys, or just focus on other people, or just focus on getting your theology right or serving in the world activistically. He acknowledges that it is a good thing to be zealous to experience the power of God through the spirit. On the other hand, he doesn't just affirm it the way it looks in Corinth. He redirects it. And I think as basic as this is, there is a paradigm shift here that if you haven't seen it or experienced it before, I want you to notice it. Okay, so let's say you are, you wanna be zealous to experience the spirit of God. What does that look like? Gordon Fee describes the Holy Spirit as God's empowering presence. So the Holy Spirit is God's not just objectively, but subjectively felt presence among God's people. To experience manifestation of the Spirit is to experience something, not just believe something. It's to encounter something, to engage something in something that transforms you, that empowers you, that doesn't leave you the way you were. Another way you could put it is God seems more real when manifestations of the Spirit happens. God seems more compelling more attractive, more life-giving, more awesome, more glorious, and just seems more relevant, more real to us. And if you are a Christian, do you not experience that? Do you not experience for God to feel more real, more compelling, more present in your life and our life? And of course, that's to be yes. I would love to experience more of God's presence and power than I do. Paul says this, then here's the answer. Get as good as you can possibly be in building up the body of Christ strive to excel in building up the body of Christ. He doesn't say, well, go have a three hour quiet time on your own over there. He doesn't say, go out and read an 8,000 page theology book that's seven volumes long. He doesn't say, go out and do all this activism. All of that stuff is good, but he says, get together with other Christians and get as good as you can be at building them up so that they experience the grace of God through you. Here's, I think, what Paul is saying. And, and when I put it this way, I'm guessing that you're all going to have a sense of, yeah, this is true. There is a profound correlation between your experience of Christian community and your experience of God. Those two things are not disconnected. If you are part of a Christian community that is distant or abusive or toxic or authoritarian or neglectful, whatever it is, it is difficult to walk away from experiences like that, feeling like God is as real, as present, as, as relevant as maybe he felt in, in before. And if you show up at a church, and I hope this has been your experience here, members for many years, newcomers in this past year, and I hope it's true in the future. If you show up at a church where people are oriented, not just towards God vertically, but towards each other horizontally, Paul is basically saying to the degree, not 20% of us, not 50% of us, not even 90, but 100% of us are oriented towards building each other up and receiving from the other 99% being built up by them to that degree you can expect to experience manifestations of the spirit. To that degree, God will seem real. To that degree, we will be palpably aware of his presence in our lives. It will be a transforming experience because from the beginning, and this is why worship is not just vertical, but also horizontal. From the beginning, it starts on page one in Genesis one. God has always chosen for reasons I won't get into today, many of which are still a mystery to me and probably always will be in this life. God has always chosen to mediate his presence 
indirectly through human beings who reflect and bear his image. Which means that if you are around human beings who do not reflect his image, God's own power and presence will be diluted by that. If you are on your own apart from other human beings who bear God's image, much of what God says and does will not be available to you. And so Paul says, we gather together to encounter God's empowering presence in a way that we cannot on our own. And that that is contingent upon everybody participating and participating in a way that's driven by love and building each other up. So I'm going to take 40 seconds here, and then I'm going to pray us out and just ask us three questions or direct our our attention to three ways that we might think about this. The first is this, guys, if this is true, we need to spend time with each other. An hour and a half a week probably does not cut it. I encourage you, show up, make time to show up for the Wednesday night Bible study if you can. Um, Spend time with each other through the week. Pick one of these prayer groups and dial into it. Do socials. I would guess that in this church, among members and among newcomers, some of the people who have had the best experience for the last year are people who have served on the hospitality team. Because they are regularly not just engaging with other people, but engaging in order to serve in order to build up. In this coming year, I would guess that we're probably going to have another ministry team or two that you could join. Find ways to put your hands and your feet to work that use your gifts and that build other people up. We need to spend time with each other to do that. The second thing is this. It's not enough to just get together and spend a lot of time with each other. One of the things I learned early on as a Christian in college is that Christians love to use fellowship language for stuff that's actually just fun. Now, I love fun. But when you get together and you watch Netflix for three hours on Friday night with seven other Christians, that's not fellowship. It's just, it's just fun. When you get together and you stuff your faces over food, that comes closer to it because it's happening over a meal, but it still depends on what you're talking about and how you engage each other. And so the second thing is this, in the time we do spend with each other, we need to intentionally create space for everybody to be able to participate. And again, this is where I do think that a lot of this is the Western Christian model. It's not for many of you that I show up and I'm just not interested in participating. It's that even if you show up and you want to participate, what can I do except sit in a chair and then go have coffee for 15 minutes and do small talk and then I go home? Like there wasn't space for it. We need to find ways, and this is partly what we'll talk about next week with spiritual gifts, where you can identify what the gifts are that God has given you, where you have a lane to run in to use them and where that is in a relational context connected to other people. And so we need to create space for this to happen. And when that space is created, much of which already is here, we need to sustain it and protect it. And then third and finally, and I I mentioned this at the beginning, so I'm going to end with it. Some of you probably feel burnt out, whether by this church or just long-term being a Christian, being in the body of Christ, and others of you feel bored. I really struggled with motivation to even come this morning. So I wondered, is this even worth it? I could do so many other things with my time. If you are burnt out and exhausted, not necessarily the case, but I would encourage you to at least ask the question, is it because the proportion between my giving and my receiving is too off balance? And maybe you need to open up your life or even ask other people around you for what you need in this season and not only ever show up to give and to give yourself away. If you do that, that's not enough. You also need to be known by other people, to be served by other people, to receive grace from other people that you are not capable of on your own. And if you are bored, I am guessing that a good chance is because we either don't know what your spiritual gifts are or you're not showing up in order to participate with them, or there's no space for you to use it. And you really are like, I, I could get all of this out of a YouTube video on Thursday. 
Um, and if that is you, I would encourage you think about and come talk to me, talk to Kirk, talk to others. What do we need to do to find space for you to find out what your spiritual gifts are, to find ways to serve and to pour out the grace that you are receiving to others. But we gather together to be built up, to build each other up, to all do that in participation. And so that we might experience more of the manifestation of the spirit. Let's pray that we're always a church that is trending in this direction.